This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanna. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. We've got a lot to talk about in the midst of gun violence, pandemic, war in uh, Ukraine still. There's a lot to talk about. And the two main topics that we're going to talk about today have to do with uh, one, a New York Times editorial on who killed journalist uh, Shireen Abouakla. I mean, the title makes it almost sound like the New York Times is finally coming clean on Palestine. But when we talk about it, we're going to find out that it's a lot more complicated. And the New York Times has still uh, late to the late to the justice table on Palestine and still is wavering a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about APAC and its attempt to uh, attack Congress people, specifically Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib and uh, Marie Newman, you know, supporting their challengers in Congress. This is uh, an unending battle that APAC is is doing, obviously, to attack pro-Palestine Congress, uh, mostly women, as it turns out now. We've got a lot to talk about about that because we have the midterm elections coming up and, you know, there's a lot going on with that. But first, we're going to get to an interview that you did with Richard Silverstein and his article in Tikkun Olam about, and I love this title of his article, Jamal, Israel's Paroxysm of Judeo-Hate. And he's going to be talking about what we've been talking about, that 70,000-person march in Jerusalem where uh, white supremacist Israelis were chanting death to Arabs, we're going to burn your villages, basically a paroxysm of hate, Judeo-hate, against uh, Palestinian uh, Palestinians, Muslims and Christians, basically. So uh, really great show today, and uh, looking forward to your interview with Richard Silverstein. A few days ago, thousands of Israeli nationalists, many of them chanting death to Arabs, paraded through the heart of the main Palestinian uh, thoroughfare in Jerusalem, Old City. The crowds, according to Israeli media, were celebrating Jerusalem Day, an Israeli holiday that marks the capture of the Old City in 1967. Palestinians see this as a provocation. Last year, the parade helped trigger an 11-day Israeli assault on Gaza. Joining us to discuss this and more, Richard Silverstein. Richard writes the Tikkun Olam blog dedicated to Israeli democracy and exposing abuses of the national security state. Welcome to Arab Talk, Richard. Thank you, Jamal. I'm so pleased to, to be with you. On June 1st, you published in your blog Israel's paroxysm of Judeo-hate vile chance of 70,000 Judeo-terrorists in the making. Please explain, what did you mean by this? Uh, As you said, Jerusalem Day is an annual march of uh, far-right Israeli-Jewish extremists who shout slogans like death to Arabs. And uh, this year they had uh, some new creative slogans, creative and scare quotes like um, Shirin uh, is a whore uh, that refers to Shirin Abu Akleh. And they seem to want to, uh, another slogan of theirs was, um, we will burn uh, Shuafat. And Shuafat was the uh, neighborhood in East Jerusalem from which uh, Muhammad uh, Abu Khadir 
came from this uh, 14-year-old child who was burned to death by uh, settlers four or five years ago. So these are some of the most provocative, most outrageous, and most insulting uh, chants that they could come up with. And the goal that these people have, and there were some estimates of as many as 70,000 of these people walking through the Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and really terrorizing the neighborhoods. The Israeli authorities forced all Palestinians in the old city to stay in their homes. They closed all the businesses, uh, Palestinian businesses in the old city. So this was a, uh, a forced occupation of East Jerusalem in a way. Um, going back to what I was saying, this is a an increasingly hostile, increasingly aggressive project by uh, settlers and the most extremist uh, individuals in Israel. And I, I need to say that while some supporters of Israel may say that these are the extreme fringe, that they don't represent all of Israel, I would really disagree with that because the, the these views that they have are echoed in the political makeup of Israel, that the Knesset is dominated by parties and individual uh, members of Knesset who either completely endorse the, these types of views or get enough support from radical extremists that that's what helps put them into the Knesset. So if you look at the leadership of Israel, the prime minister of Israel, even though he has a sort of a semi-moderate uh, perspective compared to Bibi Netanyahu, the former prime minister, um, he comes from a far-right uh, pro-settler political movement and, in fact, has advanced plans to uh, transfer territory in Israel that is primarily made of Palestinians and transferred to uh, the PA and the Palestinian Authority. So he's in favor of what I would call ethnic uh, uh, cleansing light. Um, so what my argument is that these settlers actually do represent Israel. You had the Israeli uh, leadership approve the march, knowing that this was type of thing was going to happen. And you have uh, politicians who support everything that these people uh, stand for. So they are representing the state, even though it's not in a formal uh, way. Uh, you share actually the same view. I've had a conversation a uh, um, few months ago with uh, Israeli activist and author Miko Peled, uh, who basically said the same thing because he doesn't like it when uh, these marchers are described by the media as fanatics, right-wing, or just Kahanist, uh, or as a fringe element. And then uh, that's, this is what he said. This is a major representation of Israeli society, uh, and, and, and you share the same view. In, in, in the same article, you talk about a transformation in your thinking. Uh, you wrote that over the past 20 years that you were mugged by Israeli reality. You talk about the rise of Mayor Kahana and the gradual process through uh, your examined Zionist history. You wrote, and I'm just quoting you here, it was only then that I could re-examine everything I knew about Zionist history to understand that Israel did not suddenly become a fascist state, but that the seeds had been planted a century or more earlier at the very outset of the Zionist movement. Uh, would you like to exp uh, expand on this? 
what you have to do is look uh, far back into Zionist history and go back to uh, David Ben-Gurion as early as 1937 sends a letter to his son in which he talks about the need for a Jewish state that is uh, a majority Jewish state and that the uh, Jewish element of this state will be dominant and have uh, political rights and that the Palestinians who would be left in this state uh, would be subordinate and the only Palestinians who would be welcome in the state would be ones who agree to this subservient uh, status. Um, and that is that is what fueled the Nakba in 1948. That, that's only nine years after this first letter that he sends uh, in 1937. In, 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 in 1948, he realizes in practice this plan that he's talked about in 1937, where you've expelled uh, up to one million Palest indigenous Palestinians from Palestine. You've also forbidden anyone who did leave in 1948 uh, and become refugees in Syria, Lebanon, and, and Jordan. Um, you forbid them from returning by calling them infiltrators. And a number of Palestinians who tried to return to their homes were actually killed um, for doing so. So uh, and that this infiltrated law also enabled the state to take over all of the property of the Palestinians who left. And in addition to that, you have the destruction of 400 Palestinian villages within Israel itself. So there was an eradication, an erasure of Palestinians within Israel that happened. And that's another part of uh, of this history that I'm talking about. And then if you talk about 1967, it again was another sort of step in uh, this movement uh, of ethnic cleansing um, by, by the Zionist movement. And then after 67, you have the um, onset of the settlement movement, which uh, the Greater Israel Movement, they call it, um, which basically started to actually occupy not just uh, Israel itself, but the West Bank at Gaza, and say that this is territory that in which Israel uh, would have sovereign control, whether or not it annexed it. It, it, it did annex East Jerusalem and Syria, um, um, but it hasn't formally annexed the West Bank, although uh, de facto uh, it, it has, given that there are, uh, I think, 800,000 uh, Israeli settlers in East Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank. So this is a long process that many people do not, the Palestinians understand it, obviously, but liberal Zionists do not understand this history and want to believe that 1967 started all the woes and refuse to recognize that this is a long uh, historical march towards what I call fascism. Of course, uh, apartheid, which uh, two nonprofits, uh, Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, have uh, endorsed this term apartheid, which is also controversial in some circles. You take it actually a step further, because also uh, last April you wrote a piece calling to designate Israel as a terrorist uh, state. I think your article, this is uh, Al-Aqsa under attack. Why Israel needs to be labeled a terrorist state, uh, you wrote. Today, the world understands that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, its deliberate assaults on civilian targets, its eradication of entire of the entire city of Mariupol, its execution uh, of bound civilians, bring to mind the atrocities of the Nazi 
Wehrmacht and SS during World War II, the world now clamors for accountability, demanding that Putin and his generals be tried for war crimes. And then you go on to say Israel's terrorism has lasted far longer and killed more than Russia's. For the sake of moral consistency, it must treat the crimes of uh, the Israeli state the same as the crimes of Russia. Well, I think that you have to look at uh, Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And you can even uh, expand that and talk about Israel's treatment of the frontline states, many of which it's invaded uh, a number of times, uh, in some cases like Gaza. And uh, look at this, uh, especially the treatment of the Palestinians, both uh, in the occupied territories and even within Israel itself. Um, there is a wanton disregard for civilians, a wanton disregard for um, uh, uh, proportionality in terms of the weapons that are used. Um, Israel basically treats Gaza as a punching bag. And whenever a prime minister needs to have their uh, opinion, uh, a favorable, uh, favorable um, uh, aspects, uh, favorable political uh, when they're facing any kind of political crisis, they turn to Gaza um, and uh, escalate uh, the, the attacks there. And since 1948, Israel has uh, killed as many as 40,000 uh, Palestinian civilians um, and uh, civilian Arabs in some of the other countries that it's attacked, like Lebanon. So this is a wholesale, massive state violence against uh, a, a, a nation, Palestine, and against even, uh, in some cases, against its own Israeli-Palestinian citizens. It's a systematic approach um, that completely ignores uh, any difference between uh, military or civilian targets. There are some people who want to talk about Palestinian acts of terror, um, and, but what we have to remember is that Israel has the weapons of an advanced state. It's uh, the eighth or ninth largest exporter of weapons. Uh, it's, it's one of the world's premier manufacturer of the most advanced types of weapons. It uses those weapons on the Palestinians. In some cases, it, it, it pioneers the use of new advanced weapons on the Palestinians so that it can go to the customers in the countries it sells these weapons to and say, we have field tested the weapons. We can tell you how it works. And they could show the country the the, um, the lethality of these weapons that uh, they are selling. So this is a really uh, complex, uh, comprehensive uh, program of what I call terror that Israel has um, gotten itself into. And uh, um, it's developed uh, in even more massive ways over time. It started as an embryonic process and has become a massive and systematic since then. I mean, we know the position uh, of the United States, uh, I mean, the Congress uh, and the administration, administration, whether it's Republican or, or Democrat, uh, you know, they have a very strong, favorable po position towards uh, Israel. But the media also plays a, a major role, and I'm probably taking you to the most recent event, which is the the killing of the Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akli. The New York Times on June 3rd 
published an opinion piece by the editorial board, and in it, 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 just the title alone says, "Who killed journalist Shireen Abu Akli?" I mean, I mean, basically yeah. casting doubt on who right. killed her. And it takes me to actually a colleague of her, someone who I, you know, I've, I follow on Twitter, and she follows me back. She's a um, also journalist at Al Jazeera, and she wrote that. I mean, which kind of like, you know, made a lot of sense. It said there wasn't a single shred of evidence that journalists needed to believe that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia killed Khashoggi in its embassy. You know, I mean, the only thing that we've had is that he went in, he didn't come out, but the body has not been found. There was, you know... No eyewitnesses that testified that they killed him or or cameras, etc. Shirina Baakli was murdered really on camera in full view in Israeli occupied territory by a precision shot. Uh, there were eyewitnesses. There was another reporter who who was shot in the back. Um, yet the New York Times and its headline with a question mark. <laughs> if you look at if you look at the language that the media uses in Shirin's uh, case, if I can use her first name, Shirin Abu Akhlaq's case, uh, and you look at any uh, headline about the murder of a Palestinian by the Israelis, they always use the passive tense: um, someone was killed, uh, someone died. They they euphemize, uh, if that's a word. They use euphemisms to describe it because it softens the blow and it makes Israel uh, look uh, less culpable for what it's done. And the language that's used refuses to take responsibility, both as journalism, but also refuses to hold Israel accountable for what it's doing. And this sort of uh, heinous a sort of uh, atrocious type of journalism is exactly what happened in, in the case of Shireen. Um, you had two absolutely precise and complex and pre- uh, in investigations into her murder by uh, the website Bellingcat, which is one of the most premier uh, investigative forensic uh, uh, NGOs in the world that investigated all of the evidence in her murder, investigated the videos, investigated the eyewitnesses, uh, also had a forensic acoustic expert to listen to the gunshots to try to determine how far away the sniper was from her so that they could identify which vehicle the sniper worked from and they could say that it was an Israeli military vehicle based on the distance. You had CNN, uh, a a mainstream American uh, media outlet, do the same thing. Um, so, why the New York Times needs to ask? And I just, I should just add also, Betzalem also refuted uh, the Israelis' claim that they, they had skirmishes in, in, and they were showing a video, but the video was from another instance somewhere else. Right, right. They and and this goes to the Israeli approach to these things, where they put out a conflicting narrative. Um, even though it's completely incredible and non-believable and can be dismissed out of hand, like this video that they showed of uh, Palestinians supposedly shooting at someone 
who isn't pictured, saying that this might have been where the Palestinians might have shot her. When the, the investigations I referred to prove that these fighters were in a totally different part of Janine uh, where, where the murder happened. Um, but what they do is they put out a narrative, even though it's not believable. It's sort of like uh, this old saying, if you throw spaghetti up against a wall, you're just hoping that a couple of strands of it will stick to the wall. And, and Israel is hoping that it, it, it creates just enough confusion, just enough counter-narrative, that everybody who might be interested in this, gets all confused. What happened? The Israelis say one thing. Uh, the New York Times says another thing. And uh, another media, major media outlet says a third thing. We don't know what happened. That's what the Israelis want. They want that confusion because it completely obfuscates what they've done and um, refuses to hold them accountable. But there is one important way which might force them to be held accountable. The International Criminal Court uh, announced about a year ago that they're going to commence an investigation into Israel's actions, starting with 2014 Operation Protective Edge, and they're going to include any incidents, any uh, uh, violence that Israel has engaged in since then. So every incident like this, especially since this is such a prominent incident in uh, world media, will get included in the brief that they have to investigate. So we are very far from a formal investigation and from a, any trial that might happen in The Hague of uh, Israeli generals or Israeli politicians. But this is the hope, and this is why Israel has attempted rigorously to uh, damage the ICC investigation. It has harassed Palestinians who are cooperating with the ICC and the six non Palestinian nonprofits who are labeled as terrorist entities by, uh, by Benny Gantz, uh, the Israeli minister. Um, they were labeled terrorists because they're all cooperating with the ICC. So um, this Israel has this very complex way in which it uh, not only avoids culpability, but it attacks BDS, it attacks the NGOs who are who have the opportunity to hold them accountable. It, it attacks you also. I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about your work. Uh, uh, what are you trying to do? Uh, what is, you know, what is Tikkun Olam, basically? Uh, not, not to confuse that with uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner's. Right. He, he runs Tikkun Magazine, um, and my blog is called Tikkun Olam, which means a repairing the world. And it's a traditional Jewish concept which um, calls for uh, Jews to do good deeds, uh, called mitzvot, which are um, uh, deeds that are really uh, invoked and commanded in uh, the Bible of Jews. Um, and I wanted my blog to be seen as a progressive alternative to uh, Jewish media, uh, to the uh, communal consensus in, in, in the United States among Jews, uh, Zionist consensus. Um, and I wanted to present an alternative perspective on events in Israel, on the American Jewish community, on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. So there's a kind of a wide uh, spectrum of things I'm interested in. Um, and as you said, uh, when you are a, a dissident, 
uh, within a, an ethnic community or a religious community, um, A, people don't understand what you're doing because they're so used to this um, mind think, uh, this sort of narrow vision of what's acceptable politically, uh, what's acceptable, uh, uh, acceptable in terms of religious and spiritual terms. Um, and so uh, much of the community does not understand what I'm doing. Um, there are elements of the community that are already ideologically far right wing, um, groups like Stand With Us, and really the whole Israel lobby of APAC, American Jewish Committee, and we could go on. Um, they are actually really hostile to the types of things that I'm doing. And there are other uh, Jewish groups like Jewish Voice for Peace who are doing similar things who also receive the same kind of attacks. In fact, the Anti-Defamation League has labeled Jewish Voice for Peace as anti-Israel and sort of lumped it in. They're, often we are lumped in and said either we're uh, collaborating with terrorists or we are terrorists or we're milder form is to just call us anti-Israel and attempt to... Or self-hating. Uh, or self-hating. Or self-hating. Self-hating. And <laughs> one of the most disgusting terms they use is kapo, which kapo. were Jews who collaborated with the Nazis during the Holocaust. So um, that's all these things are common ways in which you can excommunicate someone from the community. You discredit them. You smear them so that you, the, the rest of the community will not take anything that you do seriously. So if you look at where my journalism is accepted and endorsed or, and published, you won't find it in any Jewish publication, any official uh, Jewish um, you know, uh, f uh, format in the community. I'm not invited to speak to Jewish groups or in synagogues when these uh, organizations often will sponsor Israeli speakers. I'm more welcome in the Episcopal uh, uh, movement, uh, and I and I write for two publications in London that are Arab-oriented, the the New Arab and Middle East Eye, um, because those are the entities that are more receptive to what I'm doing. And um, so as a result, I, because I'm not welcome in the Jewish community, I have to turn to other communities that are more welcome. And really, for me, who grew up in the Jewish community, it's really, in effect, a tragedy. I have had to accept the fact that I am never going to be accepted for who I am in the community. And that's do you feel, do, do you feel do, do you feel there is uh, though a, a shift in 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 sentiment? I mean, is Israel's Hasbara failing? Uh, some latest polls amongst Democrats found, at least amongst the young, that uh, is uh, you know there's almost equal favorability between Israel and the Palestinian, which is kind of uh, very unusual. You know, uh, this hasn't happened for for many years. And a lot of the youth, uh, especially on college campuses, etc., uh, Jewish, I would say, youth, they basically have been more outspoken. They they are more leaning towards Jewish Voice for Peace than organizations like uh, APAC or JCRC. Uh, my oldest son, by the way, just as a personal example, um, has gravitated in that direction. He's gone on a tour uh, uh, I think it's called 
Palestine grassroots or grassroots Palestine. Um, he's gone on a tour of Palestine, um, and he is involved with these sorts of groups on the University of Washington campus. He's involved with a Palestine uh, solidarity group called uh, Super there. And um, so he's in a perfect example of, the, of a young Jew who is um, alienated from the political views of the community. Luckily for him, he's a little bit more integrated. Um, he's a little bit softer and less polemical than I am. So um, he, he's a little bit, he has one foot in one community and one foot in the other. But um, yes, what you said about the Pew poll um, is true. The younger generation is much more willing to be skeptical and question. The younger generation uh, hates Bibi Netanyahu and everything he stands for. Uh, if you look at my generation, some will support Bibi, others will just stay neutral and say, I don't know enough about this to take a position one way or another. But the younger generation looks at American politics and looks at it skeptically and looks at the racism in American society and engages in what is called intersectionality, which is solidarity with foreign movements like uh, the Palestinian movement, uh, national movement. So um, the, the hope is for the younger generation to um, really change the outlook of the community. And you have uh, examples of the Israel lobby organizations, like you mentioned, APEC, um, Stand With Us, the American Jewish Committee. Those are almost entirely the older generation, 50 plus, 60 plus, uh, the billionaires, the wealthy uh, white Jews, uh, I call them, they are uh, the, the dinosaurs. They're going to die off. I'm actually of that generation since I'm 70 years old. So um, I, I, as I said, I'm a dissident in that generation, but uh, uh, my generation is the one that will eventually pass. And I'm hoping that the younger generation will... Uh, absorb these progressive values and really turn its back on the uh, what the older generation stands for. Richard Silverstein, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you, Jamal. It's been a pleasure to be with you. That's the voice and the face of Richard Silverstein with a really excellent interview that you did with him, Jamal, regarding his article in Tikkun Olam about basically Judeo hate. Uh, the, the, the Israeli paroxysm of, of hate that's engulfing uh, the apartheid state. Uh, and it's not as if this is a new thing, Jamal, uh, because the uh, apartheid state is basically built on ethnic cleansing, hate, apartheid, all of those things, which is, you know, has hated its core of the indigenous Palestinian community. What's different is that you have Israelis now uh, or Jewish Americans who are willing to write and speak directly to this issue, unlike uh, uh, at other times. Well, I mean, uh, listen, one thing you said, and actually we keep getting corrected, and and I think the media in general uh, has to be corrected about referring to these goons, in my opinion, as just a fringe element or extremists. Because 
If you remember, we've had also Miko Peled, uh, the Israeli activist and author on the show. And he he said, listen, uh, don't refer to them as right-wingers or extremists. This is the core of what is Israel now. This is the face right. of Israel. I mean, don't let's not kid ourselves, you know, you know, uh, trying to say, well, they're just the Kahanist or that's how they've been described in the media. But in general, they reflect the sentiment of of the state, especially since Netanyahu came into power and beyond. And of course, uh, Richard Silverstein, when I had my discussion with him, he goes back to the core of Zionism, how that uh, Zionism from day one had the plan for the ethnic cleansing and everything that now people starting to talk about and creating an, an, an apartheid state and so on, that this is not something new that started just in the, in the past 10 years or in the past 20 years or since 1967. It was the plan all along, which is, that, which is very important to kind of understand. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal, especially as we approach the 75th anniversary of the catastrophe and, and the Nekba next year. Uh, uh, commemorating the 75th kind of year of this ethnic cleansing of uh, indigenous Palestinians. But um, I think absolutely we, we can't describe them as fringe. We cannot describe it as a kind of a right wing. This is the core of Israeli society is, it is an extremist apartheid uh, white supremacy society but what what is maybe a little different nowadays is like you have people like Miko Pellet, Richard Silverstein, and others who are speaking up and writing about it, which is good. But it used to be Jamal, you know, that uh, the Israeli Hasbara machine was a little bit better at whitewashing, greenwashing, pinkwashing, whatever washing you want to make uh, to talk about, you know, making the desert bloom, all these wonderful things. But that patina that washing of an apartheid state, it's getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier, Jamal. They're not able to wash it anymore. I don't know how can you wash it. I mean, how can you wash uh, basically a regime that has been uh, certified by the United Nations, by Human Rights Watch, by their own human rights organization, Beth Salem? You know, I mean, how, how much can you keep covering this up and and how gullible they think people are, which they're not. And we are in a whole different now age, the age of the internet, where you see in real time the images, the right. pictures of their ugliness. Millions of people saw the Israeli uh, police attacking a coffin. Uh, just, uh, you know, they have no respect to the dead or the living. Imagine this is. Imagine if this happened, like in 1948, when you didn't have satellite TV and you didn't but, have social but media. That's what happened. But that is exactly what happened. You had mass murders. You had ethnic cleansing. You had entire entire villages like Der Yassin, who were you know where their inhabitants were slaughtered, men, women, and children, by the Ergun, and you know, and, and the you know the 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 kind of pre pre-state of Israel uh, thugs and goons who went and terrorized indigenous Palestinians. So that's what happened before the, 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 the birth of kind of, you know, the digitized media and cell phones and smartphones that we have now. Well, that's, so why, that's, we have, exactly right. that's why we have the change. That's why they work harder at it now. 
That's why they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars right. creating basically a ministry for Hasbara. They don't call it this, but basically that's what they have. Uh, they, they have a whole army that monitors social media. And, and sadly, they have their uh, surrogates right here in Congress and surrogates in, 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 in the media. And, 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 uh, and this is the, our next topic, talking about the uh, New York Times editorial, which is really just, uh, you mentioned, I don't see anything good in that editorial. It's totally disappointing. And you know what? No, but I was, I was just going to say the title was kind of seductive because well, the, title, the title made you think like, okay, maybe the New York Times is coming clean, no, but they're not. No, you know what? I see the ugliness in this title with the question mark. Yeah, the question mark. You don't right. have, this is the question mark. It's meant to, to have you question whether she was killed by Israelis or not. When the whole world, when you had even CNN, which is unusual, saying CNN that Israel killed it. When you have investigators saying that uh, the bullet came from the Israeli soldiers and, and they refuted their claim that there were skirmishes from Beth Salem and whatever. Right. I mean, actually, Richard Silverstein and I talked about it earlier. So to me, why I want to talk about this, because even after you have that coverage and you had that uh, global sympathy, I would say, uh, you know, that I've seen uh, because she's number one, uh, a journalist. So you had that kind of, you, she's, she's also an American citizen and she's a woman and, and she's well known and whatever. So we had this global sympathy. And now, because there is going to be an investigation by the ICC, Qatar has officially filed for right. an application to investigate that. So that's coming from a country because she works for Al Jazeera, which is a, a Qatari uh, news organization. And so now they're little by little trying to cast doubt. They're following the New York Times by writing this editorial. And this is, this is not someone sending a piece to the New York Times times to get published this is by the editorial board exactly which they put it very slickly you know in a way like okay we're trying to be neutral but let's listen it's it's you know what it's again when palestinians get murdered oh there are two sides of the story let's let's listen to all the sides and when israelis get murdered it's like oh they got murdered well, this is an act of terrorism this is right so and that's so, the thing that's the thing that I really hated about the so-called editorial, because really it's Israeli propaganda in the New York Times, Jamal. What I hated about it is that, you know, again, the 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 title minus the question mark almost makes you think like, okay, the New York Times is going to come clean, but you're exactly right. Rather, it's a both sides of the story kind of thing. Both the Israelis and the Palestinians need to investigate, blah, blah, blah. It's the same kind of two-sided BS that we see all the time from the New York Times, well, from the New York Times and from the corporate media all the time. And let, let's be clear to our readers, to our viewers, to our listeners, there's no two sides to this. Israel murdered an American citizen journalist by its in its military. They targeted her. They murdered her. Uh, they, uh, they, they almost killed her cameraman. They shot him in the back. He survived by the grace of, you know, the grace of something he managed to survive. But the New York Times is living up to its reputation, Jamal, 
of being a propagandist and a and a and a kind of mouthpiece for the Israeli Hasbara machine. Just a reminder to everyone: when we talk about uh, the New York Times, uh, supposedly this is the publication of record, right? That's how it's dis- been described, and uh, it's a very important publication in the United States. But I want to remind everyone that it was also that the New York Times that o- wrote uh, several articles, not one about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. 100%, Jamal. That's 100% true. And I also want to remind our viewers, listeners, anybody who's listening and watching, that it's also the New York Times that's talking about all the heroism and all the great things that are happening in Ukraine right now. Again, the one-sided kind of reporting and warmongering, if you will, in support of what, uh, what NATO and the EU and the United States is doing in Ukraine. And only now, you know, we're, we're not going to talk about this in detail. You're beginning to see little snippets of what you and I have been talking about now for months, which is, well, Russia looks like it's, you know, getting, getting a lot stronger, doing a lot of things that are indicative that they could achieve their, their, their kind of strategic aim there with horrific cost to both Ukrainians and Russians. But that story, which we've been trying to articulate, only now the New York Times, little drabs of that after months of supporting the, the you know, with, you know, the American basically war machine that's been supporting Ukraine and, you know, contributing to the destruction, I might say, of Ukraine and the killing of so many innocent Ukrainians. So, you know, the New York Times wants to be called the the you know, the newspaper of record, but they're really a propaganda machine in many of these regards, Jamal. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. So just last week, we we talked about the NRA and we right. talked about APAC, which, which are basically two sides of the same coin. I mean, exactly. when it comes to death and destruction and, and being a large, the, two of the largest lobby groups in Washington, D.C., and they bring you nothing but bad. And now, as we are approaching the elections, the midterm elections and primaries, of course, you're going to see the work of the APAC, and they are targeting basically Congress or representatives who are critical of Israel, you know, that that they, they will actually put a question mark about, let's write a blank check to Israel, or, uh, or we want to commemorate Al-Nakba, you know, just like we commemorate the Armenian massacre and other things exactly. like this. And, and so now let's put all, uh, they want to put all their energy and all their support and money in uh, basically getting rid of them, making them lose the elections. And, and I'll start with two, specifically two candidates, because this is just like now developing within the past couple of weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, the new pack, uh, not that new, but it's been endorsed by Bakari Sellers, and and you've seen Bakari Sellers on. If you haven't, people who haven't heard of him, he's usually on on CNN, and now it's planning to spend upward of one million dollars to support uh, one of the candidates trying to unseat uh, the progressive and and and, and pro Palestinian. Uh, uh, independence uh, representative Rashida Tlaib. Okay, so that sounds like well, who's Bakari? Where did they come from? He's an African American, 
And he, you know, I mean, I was trying to re- like I've seen him many times, and I'm like, why? I mean, here he is. Why is he targeting Rashida Tlaib? Basically, the first Palestinian woman and Muslim, and and one of the two Muslim women in Congress. Uh, she's part of. Uh, she's she works amongst the African American community. I mean, she basically right. her supporters in Michigan, and you should know more better than me, are African-Americans there. Exactly. Right? And then, and so then I, I dug deeper into his background. Well, guess what? You know, I mean, despite his, his, his relative youth, you know, and Bakari Sellers is a veteran operative for APAC. He's always been that, Jamal. The American-Israel Political Action Committee. And, uh, you know, you could go read different articles, one of them right. by the Electronic Intifada. Sellers was recruited way back in 2004 when APAC had just begun a massive campaign at historically black colleges and among even younger students of color nationwide. So he was like a real big find for them. He got invited to, to travel, you know, those trips, the Hasbara trips, full accommodation, you know, paid for two trips to Tel Aviv to meet with politicians, etc. And and since then, he's been just going to all their uh, conferences every year. He's featured there. And, and, and now he's basically targeting, trying to create this confusion uh, in the African-American community, which supports in Michigan, which supports Rashida Tlaib, along with other minorities, Arab-American minorities and others, and trying to drive a wedge, drive a wedge, which is really That's sad right. because saying that Rashida Tlaib is not working hard for the African-American community and she's focusing right. on other issues, being part of uh, this, the, the, you know, the squad and, and kind of... It's... Anyway, we could talk for hours about this, but, but now he is basically raising money uh, to with support. the help of APEC, with the help with of the help APEC. of APEC, of course, it's 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 his his group, you know, and 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 to support basically uh, the candidate Janice Winfrey, she is the current Detroit city clerk, who, who by the way says that Israel is very important for our national security, like the United States. Where did, where does that talking point? Does that sound familiar to you, Jamal? I wonder where she gets that. <laughs> I know. I mean, point. here is a city clerk from from Michigan thinks that Israel C- city is clerk so, from Detroit from who should sorry, be worried from, about the from si- Detroit who should be worried about the city of Detroit, which has its own problems. To think that Israel, an apartheid state, is in the national security interests of Detroit, Michigan, is a little bizarre. But having said that, it, it sounds like she and Bakari Sellers are best buddies now, and they've just taken over the APAC, uh, you know, talking points. But this is not new news, Jamal. No, uh, but... A- APAC has always looked for African-American, Latino, folks of color to act as their surrogates by giving them money and support to advocate for pro Israeli ideas. But this, I want is to not, go back to- this is not just advocate for pro-Israel ideas. This is to advocate and to unseat, right? basically, uh, in this case, a Palestinian-American uh, representative, Rashida Tlaib. And then we'll talk about the next one, which the other one is Mary Newman uh, from running in, uh, in, in Illinois, uh, also because of 
her stance on Palestinian issues and supporting Betty McCollum's resolutions, which we spoke about that. Right. Also for com- uh, for supporting the commemoration of Al-Nakba. In fact, in fact, just uh, this past weekend, Mary Newman went uh, in Chicago and she spoke in front of Palestinian Americans who raised the flag and to commemorate Al-Nakba, etc. And, and in her case, and this is, I think, in... Uh, uh, she's 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 running in the Democratic primary, of course, uh, in in Illinois's uh, newly drawn sixth congressional district, which covers the suburbs of uh, west of uh, Chicago. And so, you know, I don't know if you know much about Mary Newman, but she got elected in 2020, uh, just uh, defeating right. the and unseating Lipinski, uh, who is a very uh, you know institutional i think he's been there for at least 18 years in in power and is anti uh, oppose uh, you know uh, right to abortion anti the lgbtq plus community protections and anti immigration etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, so you know she's very progressive and now uh, they want to unseat her well, of course, Jamal, they want to unseat her, not because she's progressive, because APAC will support you if you're so-called progressive. It's the PEPs that they want to go after. PEPs, progressive, progressive except for Palestine. Progressive except Palestine. for Palestine, because one of the strategic uh, angles that APAC and their supporters use is that they will support right-wing extremists and so-called progressives as long as they get on the apartheid Israel bandwagon. And uh, she hasn't, Jamal. She's, you know, she goes to Chicago. She goes to a Nekba commemoration. She's supporting Betty McCollum's, you know, work with Palestinian children, obviously, and some of the great work that uh, the Congresswoman has done. And so, of course, APAC is going to go after her. But, you know, Sadly, so in her uh, case, just to say, kind of like this yeah. is a spin-off. They use the Democratic majority for Israel PAC, because uh, of course, you know, because APEC, they're not going to use the rebel, the Republican uh, committee for uh, Israel. They're going to use the Democrat committee. <laughs> I know, of but course. this is this is the, this is the committee that writes checks. APAC basically directs funds because APEC right. does not directly write money, but in fact. Now they are endorsing her opponent, uh, Sean Caston, and who has raised $2.7 million wow. so far, wow. just, uh, in- including a last payment of $46,000 uh, by, uh, by this pack and another 16900 from the New York Democrat Coalition Action Fund, which is also associated with this PACs. And they're taking a whole ad campaign uh, in Chicago, um, and it says, say no to a corrupt politician representing us, say no to Mary Newman. (laughs) This is how the ad reads, uh, running (laughs) along, paid by the Political Action Committee for uh, Democratic Majority for Israel. The ad uh, is one of several ads basically attacking her uh, just and, and more are supposed to come in, in, in the coming uh, next weeks. Well, you know, it's uh, it's typical. I want to just refer back to something you said last week. And we've said, you know, many times before, 
why why is it that APAC is not forced to register as a foreign lobbying group? Exactly. I mean, that's basically what they're doing. I mean, it, can you imagine, for example, if there was a PAC for uh, China supporting you know, China supporters or Iran, supporters, or Iran, or, or Iran, or Pakistan, or you know whatever, and uh, you know somebody, I, I, I there's a, a, a military uh, colonel who uh, got indicted this week for you know, doing some backhanded uh, lobbying for, for UAE, he's going to jail because he didn't declare himself as a foreign, uh, you know, as a foreign agent of uh, UAE in, in attempting to lobby for them. Yet APAC, Bakari Sellers, these different PACs are pumping in millions of dollars for people to support the strategic interests of uh, of a rogue apartheid regime. They get away with it. So, you know, you, the question still stands. How are they allowed to do this and not register as a foreign agent? They shouldn't. And, 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 and we should keep asking this question time and time again. And I think others are asking this question. And again, I repeat just what we said last week. I mean, you have two destructive, basically, uh, you know, PACs in Washington, D.C., APAC and the NRA, uh, that lead to nothing but destruction. That lead nothing. There is nothing good that comes out from these two organizations. Well, unless you consider uh, mass murder, uh, unless you're a big supporter of mass murder, because since our last program, Jamal, there have been, you know, twelve more mass shootings in this in the United States in the span of a week since our last show. Twelve more mass shootings. Doctors getting killed children getting killed i mean that's that's the that's the work of the nra and you have a similar destructive path with apac and even though you know uh nothing but destruction comes from these uh organizations uh they get away with it they literally jamal get away with murder and nothing is done about it You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episode, and we will speak to you next week. See you next week.